All right, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 35. Um, and, and we're calling this supper, it is the story of the Last Supper. It's the, Matthew's account of the Last Supper uh, with Jesus. Um, and it's where he institutes uh, the practice that we call communion, call the Lord's Supper, call the Eucharist. There are lots of different terms, uh, but, but it's all about the same thing. Um, this practice that Jesus is going to introduce to his disciples today. Um, and, and for us here, we use these little uh, cups. And, uh, and they're kind of goofy, right? They're kind of, I, I don't know, I feel different ways about them depending on the week. Um, I probably think about them more than you do. Um, but, the, you know, they're kind of, it's, it's, it's a pretty far from the way that Jesus and the disciples did this, right? Like, there's no, if you look at all the different accounts, none of the accounts, that they're, they're maybe slightly different, and that's true across the Gospels. It's actually a, a good sign for us in terms of biblical truth that the Gospels have slight differences because these are four different authors writing about the same subject. If they were exactly the same, that's when you know that something's up. But if they're slightly different, that's actually a good sign. Uh, but none of them, none of those accounts uh, say, and Jesus uh, peeled back the film. <laughs> right? None of them say that. So uh, th th it's a little bit far from the symbolism, right? Because Jesus took one piece of bread and broke it and gave it to the disciples. They're all from one loaf. Um, and, and then they all drank from one cup, right? They, they took the cup and they passed it around. They drank from the same cup. There's a real emphasis on the communal nature of this practice there, right? So there's, there's things that we're missing with these little guys in terms of the symbolism that Jesus gives. But there'd always been, but another thing is that it was part of a whole meal, right? They were eating a meal when this happened. And so the early church uh, took the took communion as a meal. Uh, it was like actually like they, they didn't they would never have have just had this much bread, or even just this much wine because it was it was their evening meal and it seems they took it almost daily together. Uh, but that caused some problems. So in the when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, um, he has to address some problems they had with communion. We see this in First Corinthians chapter eleven, twenty, 20 through twenty two. Where he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the church was gathered, and Corinth was gathering together, and they were taking communion, and they were eating a meal. Whatever bread and wine there was, they were just eating it. They would, you know, people, different people would bring some, but they would just eat it. So you could easily imagine if you came to church and you were like, and people were like, eh, we're out of communion. You know, Fred ate it all. And, and then Bob's over there, he's drunk, he drank all of the wine. That's what it was like. They were actually like getting, people just gorging themselves, people getting drunk, and then other people who had probably worked late, showing up late, and going, oh, it's all gone? No, no blood of Christ for me? No body of Christ for me? So in light of that, so, so we see that there were problems with communion like from the beginning. And in light of that, I think Paul would have been a big fan of these guys. 
right? If, he, if Paul was like, well, listen, if I have to choose between people getting drunk or these little goofy cups, I'd go for the goofy cups, you know? So there's always been some issues with this. The important thing in all of it is that we always come back to what, was Jesus, what did Jesus intend for us to get out of this? Is this? If this is the one thing that he intended us to do regularly in remembrance of him, what is it that we're supposed to get out of it? And what does this passage have to tell us about what we're meant to get out of it from Jesus himself? Because it's the only thing that he gave them where he's like, do this specific thing. Right? We're, as a religion, we're not very, we don't have a lot of those things. Right? There's a lot of religions where there's you know, 10 steps to get to God and that kind of thing. And you have to do them all and you have to do them exactly the right way. Those kind of, we don't have a lot of that. But this is one thing that Jesus said, we need to do this regularly together in remembrance of him. So let's look at it. Today we'll look at verses 17 through 25 first. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Okay, so the first day of unleavened bread, this was um, something that they did in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. So in addition to the Passover, they also celebrated this whole week by only eating unleavened bread. Um, and, and this was something that was implemented from uh, the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 23, 4 through 8. It tells them, these are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, the holy convocation. We, got, we should have this up there. Um, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is Yahweh's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present to the, a food offering to Yahweh for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So the first month of the year was uh, Abib. Later that name gets changed to Nisan, but it's still the same first day of the month, and it was in uh, around when our March or April would be. So it was the spring, and this was when they were taken out of Egypt. This was such a landmark event that it changed their calendar. If we look at Exodus chapter 12, where this actually happens, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. He is resetting their calendar. The, the Israelites had gone into Egypt, 12 small families, 
roughly, right? There's a small number of people. They grew in Egypt. They became enslaved in Egypt. Now they were being freed from Egypt and released as a new nation. They were released as a nation now, not just a collection of, of not just kind of a small family. And, and this was such a big deal that it changed their calendar. This isn't like, oh, this is the first month. I'm rescuing you in the first month. He's saying, now this is the first month. Such a landmark event that it reset their entire calendar. They're a new nation. God's doing something new with them. They need to reset their calendar. And they reset it around this event. Think about how significant that is. Imagine something that would be big enough that we would have to go, okay, now we're starting from scratch with the calendar. This is now New Year's Day. That's what is happening with the Israelites. They're resetting their entire calendar per God's instruction around this event. So the Passover was very important to the Israelites. It marked the event that started everything for them. It marked their rescue from Egypt. This was the landmark, the landmark event in their history. As they're being set free, they restart fresh. And I think I wanted to consider in this what did the disciples, what would the disciples have felt celebrating Passover at this moment, right? On this occasion, what would it have been like for them to celebrate the Passover? Because traveling with Jesus was exciting and awesome. They got to see and hear amazing things, but it was also stressful, right? Especially right now, he's just been challenging the religious elite who seem intent on killing him. They're fleeing from people. There's all this turmoil it's a very tense situation. They're traveling from Jerusalem back to Bethany at night to sleep, and they're coming back and forth, and Jesus is retreating, and then he's talking to them about the end times, or he's talking to them about when, what's going to happen when it all ends, which again would be very exciting, but also kind of bewildering and a little scary. So this would be a stressful moment for them as they're then going to go celebrate the Passover. And, and I think that if we consider what is it like for us to celebrate holidays, it would probably be kind of comforting for them, a little bit of a respite from the stress, right? They, they're excited probably to celebrate the Passover, do something traditional, eat the traditional foods, ha, you know, have that feeling that we get around the holidays. Like we don't celebrate Passover, so we don't necessarily connect with that. But consider, for example, like what it was like for us to celebrate holidays, especially the Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays in, in 2020, right? It had been this crazy, stressful year. People started putting out their Christmas lights like in October because they were just desperate for that joy, desperate for the comfort that that tradition would bring. When the world seemed upside down, that seemed more important than ever. And that's often what it's like. We feel those moments of like, hey, I go back to that tradition, get some of that comfort, get some of that joy. That's probably what the disciples were feeling, but then they have something that's similar as well to our own experience of holidays, which is, you're like, oh, great, we got everybody together, the family's together, you're at, you're at the table now, and you're, uh, you're, you're eating the meal, and you're feeling good, and then someone says something that, that creates a lot of tension. In this case, it's Jesus, and he says, one of you will betray me. Like, imagine that for the disciples. Again, they're, they're probably feeling very good at this moment. You get to go to this nice man's house 
and eat the Passover, celebrate the Passover together. They're probably having a good time, relaxing a little bit. And then Jesus says, hey, everybody, I got something to say. One of you, one of you is going to betray me. They don't, know what to, they don't know what to do with that. But notice that, interestingly, they don't question it. They don't question that it will happen. They don't question the veracity of the statement itself. They don't even have, they even have enough self-awareness to have some self-doubt. They say, is it I, Lord? They start asking, it says one after another, they say, is it me? Is it I, Lord? Am I the one who's going to betray you? They've got enough self-awareness at this point to recognize that, that they're not always, they don't always know what he knows. Then Jesus says something that is pretty bewildering. This is a, a, a statement that we just have to wrestle with, I think. It says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Okay, so the first part is not that bad, right? It says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He says, there's been prophecies. What's going to happen to me is going to happen to me. It's been prophesied. I will be betrayed. That's written. It's going to happen. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So he's saying, woe to the person who is going to betray him. And he says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Which if, one, if you or I says that, or if, one of, if somebody, that's a phrase that we hear people say, I would have been better if you hadn't been born, or been better if I hadn't been born, those kind of things. Like, people throw that around sometimes. But honestly, like, like if one of you said that to me, if you said like, hey, I wish you hadn't been born, it would sting. But it, I would be like, whatever, you're dumb. <laughs> you know, in that in the, like, you're not omniscient. You don't know everything. This is God made flesh. This is God made flesh saying, it, the creator made flesh saying it had been better for Judas if he hadn't been born. I don't, I don't even know, I don't quite know how to process that or what to do with that statement. That's a bewildering statement. That's something to think about. And it also just causes us to, in general, consider Judas in, as a whole because could it have been possible for Judas not to be the one to betray Jesus? Is it possible that it could have been somebody else? Jesus says, it's going to happen, but woe to the one by whom it happens. Would it have been possible for Judas not to have been the one? If he had chosen not to, could, would somebody else have done it? Was it possible that he didn't have to be the one to betray Jesus? Or was it something that was going to happen. He was going to do it. He had no control. It seems by everything we read in scripture that it was a choice that he made. For At least for Judas, it felt like a choice. He felt like he made the choice to betray Jesus. He wasn't going like, I don't know why I'm doing this. He made the choice to betray Jesus. It also seems he made the choice not to seek forgiveness. Because the other question we have is, could he have been forgiven? If he had sought forgiveness after the fact, could he have been forgiven and brought back into the fold? Because we know, spoiler alert, he ends up killing himself as a result of this. The consequences of his betrayal are deadly for Jesus, but that's only temporary in his case, but deadly for Judas the betrayer as well because he, he doesn't seek forgiveness and he, he ends up opting for suicide. 
as a result of it. But I believe he could have been forgiven if he, if he had sought that forgiveness. But we don't know. We don't know how that, we, we don't know for sure how these things could have played out. Did he have to do it? Why does Jesus say this? It would have been better if he hadn't been born. I'm not going to offer you satisfying answers to any of those questions today or in the future. <laughs> this is the reality of faith and of scripture and of wrestling with it, that some things we're, we cannot fully know or understand this side of eternity. Judas does ask, is it I, Rabbi? Now, Matthew records all the other disciples saying, is it I, Lord? And Judas, and Judas saying, is it I, Rabbi? And he may be pointing there at a difference in Judas's relationship with Jesus as compared to everybody else. Because everybody else calls him Lord, which indicates their submission to him, right? That he is their master. Lord indicates that they're submitting to him in that way as Lord. All the, Judas, Judas calls him rabbi, which is a term of respect, but it, mean, it means teacher. Um, it's a term of respect, but it's, it's maybe indicating that he's not fully submitted to him. He recognizes him as a teacher, somebody to listen to, but not necessarily somebody to obey. Jesus responds to his question by saying, you have said so. And this phrase that we'll see repeated by Jesus in the coming weeks seems to be a way that Jesus answers questions in the affirmative. Um, he seems to be saying yes. It's just kind of a, an interesting phrase and way to say that. He's essentially saying your question isn't a question, it's a statement. Right? He's, that he's not, when he says you have said so, he's saying, you know, take the question mark off. Not is it I, Lord, it is I, Lord. Or it, it, not, it, is it I, Rabbi, but it is I, Rabbi. Saying, you have said so. We'll look next here at verses 26 through 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I want to point something out about these words that Jesus says. Because since we have, as, uh, as a global church, maintained the practice of remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood in these ways... These words are, are, are sacred, but they're also familiar, right? They're, we recognize that they're special words, they're sacred words, but they're also familiar to us. But for the disciples, hearing this for the first time, everything that Jesus says here would have been shocking to them. Everything that Jesus says as he implements this practice of remembrance would have been shocking to them. So when he says, take, eat, this is my body, the idea of eating human flesh, even symbolically, would have been something that was shocking to them. Eating unleavened bread would have seemed ordinary. They were doing this uh, for a week every year of their lives. But eating, and, and eating the flesh of sacrificed animals would have, would have been something that they recognized because that was also something that they did um, as a part of celebrating the Passover. And, and eventually the disciples would have made this connection between eating Jesus' 
flesh symbolically by eating the unleavened bread and eating the flesh of sacrificed animals. Maybe they don't make that connection on this night, but they do eventually and recognize that that's what he's, he's referring to is just as they ate the sacrificial lamb, they will eat Jesus' body symbolically as their sacrifice. But the next thing that he says, drink of it, all of you, this is my blood, that like would have made the, the previous command to eat, eat his flesh symbolically pale in comparison. Because that would have been this a crazily shocking thing for them to hear. Because the law of Moses was very clear on its dietary restrictions. And one of the most important ones, and one of the oldest ones, was not to drink blood. That actually gets implemented first as Noah is getting off the ark. As Noah is getting off the ark, God speaks to him and his sons and tells them um, to eat animals. And it seems to be the first time. It seems that before the ark, everybody was vegetarians. I know, it's, it sounds bad. Um, but it seems to be the case because this is what he says to them in Genesis. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So here he seems to be saying, as you used to just eat the plants, now also eat animals. But right with that, he leaves this command, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from his fellow man. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. It says, you shall not eat blood because that has the animal's life in it. The life is in the blood. He reiterates this in the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 17, where he says, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. This passage reminds me of like when I... And, and telling my kids something that I need them to do or not do that I'm pretty sure they're going to try to do. You, did you catch how, like, there's not that many words in, that, in those four verses. They're just repeated over and over again. He's like, listen, don't eat the blood. Whoever you are, you're an Israelite, you're a, so, you're, you're a foreigner, they're, they're living with you, don't let them eat blood. That's got the life in the blood, so don't eat it. Don't eat the blood. Blood, don't eat it. Any blood, you hunt it, pour it out. Don't eat it, pour it out on the ground, cover it. It's got the life in it, the life is in the blood, so don't eat the blood. Whatever, don't eat the blood. Right, he's like being very, like it's over and over again. The command is repeated in four verses. It's over and over and over again. Don't eat the blood, okay? The life is in the blood. And he also says in there, very important, he says, 
the, the blood has its life in it. I gave it to you to make atonement for your souls. It's for you to make atonement. You can make atonement with it because the life is in the blood. But he's very specific. Don't eat the blood. And it's, it's from before. Notice that it, when, he, when Noah gets off the ark and he gives them this command, he doesn't give them any other dietary restrictions. At that point, God's people can eat pork. They can eat all the other things. He says, every, every creature I give to you. It's not until the law of Moses that they add all these other dietary restrictions in. At that point, the only, the only dietary restriction when Noah gets off the ark is blood. So the fact that then Jesus takes this cup and says, take this drink, it's my blood. Like the disciples got to be going, we don't do that. Like they know it's not actually his blood. They know that they're drinking it symbolically. But this is the level of, of seriousness that, Jesus, that God gives this command is to where they wouldn't even joke about it, right? If they had... If, if you imagine Israelites at the time and, and maybe they're like, you know, having a party and so the, the kids are there and they, they give the kids some grape juice and they're there at the kids' table and they're drinking and one of them goes like, oh, look, I'm drinking blood. <laughs> you know, kids? You've seen kids. Okay. They're like, oh, I'm drinking blood. Look, I'm drinking blood. You can imagine the parents going like, oh, oh, oh. we don't even joke about that. This is the level of seriousness, that they wouldn't let them play around joking about that. And Jesus is saying, drink this, it's my blood. Drink this as you symbolically are drinking my blood. For them, it would have been mind-blowing. It's normal to us because we've been doing it for centuries in remembrance of Jesus. But for them, as it's being implemented, this would have been shocking news for them. And he says, he connects it directly with these commands by saying, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet, but again, he's making that connection to the life is in the blood and it's the blood that makes atonement because of the life that's in the blood. And he's saying, my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. My blood is poured out for atonement. Because while all blood has life, Jesus' blood has true life, has eternal life. It can pay for all sins, all time, not just for a year, but for forever. Past, present, and future, his blood atones for sin because of the life. So Jesus is, is doing here, is implementing essentially a new Passover. If the Passover had marked this cornerstone landmark event for Israel their freedom from slavery in the land of Egypt, which launched them as a nation. In implementing the Lord's Supper at the Passover feast, Jesus is saying, this is a landmark event. This is the new covenant. This is the new cornerstone landmark event, and it's connected to the Passover. It's connected to their freedom from Egypt. And just like it was a new beginning for them, it's a new beginning for him, his kingdom, the church. It's a landmark event. It sets everything in motion. Just as the blood of the sacrificial lamb caused the angel of death to pass over the house of the Israelites, so too the blood of Christ will cause God's wrath to pass over those who have believed in him and accepted his substitutionary atoning sacrifice. If we continue the account from Exodus chapter 12, 
He says this, tell all the congregation of Israel on that, on that tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he, shall, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh on that, that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, with its head, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you, on the houses where you are, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Jesus is connecting these events in the same way that they were meant to eat the Passover meal. Put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that when the angel of death saw it, he would pass over them. But then they were to eat it that way. And notice he says they were to eat it with their sandals on their feet, with their belt fastened, with their staff in their hand, because they're going to be ready to go to get free from slavery. That when that happened and, and Pharaoh relented and let them go, that they were ready to get out. They were ready to allow this sacrifice to launch them into a new life of freedom. So too, when we take communion and we take in symbolically the blood of Jesus, it is like that blood on the doorpost. And when God sees that we have been washed in the blood of Jesus, that we've been made righteous by his sacrifice, the angel of death will pass over us. God's wrath will pass over us. We will be set free from our slavery to sin. But we too need to do it with our belt fastened, our shoes on, our staff in our hands. So we're ready to go, flee from our sins and into the new life that he has for us. The abundant life we have now and the eternal life that we are destined for. This is the new Passover. It's the landmark event for us. And Jesus implements this. But he also tells them, that it's the last time he will drink it with them. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's commanded his followers to keep this practice. But he says, I'm not going to drink again until I'm with you in the new kingdom. I'm not going to celebrate again until I'm with you in the new kingdom. We'll look lastly here at verses 30 through 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. There's always something when, you read, when I read scripture that like stands out to me that I hadn't noticed before. Um, and, and this time it was, it was this phrase. And when they had sung a hymn. This passage starts with, when they had sung a hymn. Like, they're celebrating Passover. Jesus is like, hey, one of you is going to betray me. They're all like, well, who? And there's like this debate and questions and tension in the room. And then Jesus is like, hey, I got a new practice for you guys. You're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, what? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? Like, okay. And you can imagine they're like, they're doing it. And they're not, like it makes sense to us. It makes sense to us as a way of remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood. We do it. It makes sense especially if we've been around it for a long time. But for them, this, he, hadn't even, he hadn't gone to the cross yet. So they don't fully understand this. They're like drinking, imagine drinking it, going like, okay, I'm symbolically drinking the blood and they're passing the cup around. They get to the end, they're like confused and scared again because now the, this betrayal is supposed to happen. And then Jesus is like, let's sing. <laughs> like, it just blows me away that it's like, and when they had sung a hymn, like, when they sung a hymn right now, they just, <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I don't know what, I don't know why, but like, it's just like such crazy things are happening. And then it's just like, all creatures of our God and King, you know, like, I just, what, what must they have been thinking as they go through that? Like, we like to think of it in this like, you know, perfect situation where they all just like, that, you know, they, they're all, you know, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then it's like, oh, it's Judas. And they're like, oh, it's Judas, of course. And then, and then it's like, oh, now, everybody, I'm going to implement the, the new covenant, and here's the practice that I have for you. I'm like, oh, yes, this makes perfect sense. And I'm just taking this and drinking this, and okay. And then Jesus is like, let's sing a hymn. And it's like, but that's no way. That's what it was like. These are real people. You know what I mean? That would be like some of them taking the cup being like, uh, okay, y'all did it, I guess I'll, I'll do it, you know? I, it just seems crazy. That was a crazy time. And then they sing a hymn. And then they go back to the Mount of Olives. They're back to the Mount of Olives. They've been traveling between Jerusalem and Bethany. I've included in the study, got a, a map for you that shows kind of all of the places they go. You can look at that later. Um, but they, the Mount of Olives is kind of between Bethany and Jerusalem. They've been staying in Bethany. They kind of keep having to travel back and forth, and going through the Mount of Olives is the way to go. They're back on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus tells them now that they're all going to fall away. He's like, listen, you know, we know who's going to betray me, but you're all going to fall away tonight. You're all going to fall away. You're going to fulfill Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, where it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. You're all going to fall away. But then he even tells them that after the resurrection, he's going to meet them in Galilee. Right, Verse 32, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He foretells his resurrection again, and he tells them, I'll see you in Galilee. But the disciples aren't going to stand for this 
uh, you know, you're all going to fall away business. And Peter, always the mouthpiece, always the most boisterous, bold of the disciples, he says, I will never fall away. I will never fall away from you. And, and Jesus says, so you're going to actually specifically deny me three times tonight before the rooster even crows. Like, you're going you're gonna to fall away from me, and, and you're going to reiterate your denial of me three times. Tells them that. And the, the disciples all respond. They're all saying this. Peter's the one who's recorded. Peter's the one who remembered. But they all fall away from him. But if we look at, at that last verse, that verse by itself, like, that could be a, that's a good, like, motivational verse, right? If we just took it out of context, like people like to do. Um, this would be a good one. You could put on a coffee mug or on a, a shirt with some, you know, cool, tough guy stuff. But he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the, all the disciples said the same. So they all said, yeah, we, even if we must die, we're going to stand with you. And that's like such a, they're like courageous. They're like, you can imagine it's a scene in a movie where it's like the, the hero is going, you know, well, I, I don't think I'm going to make it. And, and I don't know if, I have no one with me. I'm all alone. And his friends step up and they go, we'll stand with you. And even if we have to die, we're going to stay with you. And they all, now 11 guys, they're all stepping up. They're like, yes, me too. Me too. And the music is swelling. You see the scene? Can you see it? The music swells. And then they're going to go, and they go fight the battle together, right? And they're, and the guy's not, the hero's, our hero's not alone anymore. Now he's got these 11 friends with him and they're all fighting side by side. But in this movie, it's not a movie. And it doesn't happen. All those guys who stepped up and said, even if I have to die, I'll stay with you. They all chicken out. Doesn't, that's a, it'd be a terrible script. <laughs> this is not the movie you want to see. This is not the, the movie you want to see where all those guys make this courageous stand and say, even if I must die with you, I'll not deny you. But they all do. They all, <laughs> they all deny him. They all fall away. And he is alone in the end. He is alone. That's not, that's not the image we, we like to see, right? We like the stories of Christians who stand for their faith and even die, even martyr, die a martyr's death because they stood for their faith and they were brave and courageous. That's the, the stories of Christians that we like to see. That's the stories of faith that we like. This is one where all those guys who said they were going to stand up, they all chicken out. But the thing is, it's not about them. It's about him. It's not about the disciples. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And it's about what he's done. It's not about our strength. It's about his strength. And this is a reminder that sometimes we're going to fail like the disciples. But it's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we've done. It's not about how strong we are or how courageous we are. It's about him. It's about Jesus and his strength and what he has done, not about what we have done. It reminds me of <clears throat> when, when my kids are little and, and when most kids are, are really little and they're first starting to walk and they're getting a little independent, but they still often want you to come pick them up uh, because their legs are very short and it's hard for them to walk uh, long distances. So sometimes they're like, I want to hitch a ride. And so they want you to pick them up and they'll come up to you and they'll put their arms up and they'll say, hold you hold you. And I always use that opportunity to pretend like they could hold me, and I kind of lean into them. And go, oh, thank you. You're going to hold me. Because they, they should be saying, hold me. They're asking, they're asking to be picked up. Or they say, hold you. 
And then they act, even once you pick them up, they kind of act like they are the ones holding you because they grab on. They're little tiny fists and little tiny fingers, and hopefully they grab some clothes. But so often they grab that chest hair. And it's holding on to the chest hair, and it hurts so bad. And you just think, like, you don't have to do that. I got it. Like, and not only do I have it, but if I didn't, if I go like this, you're plummeting to the ground. This is not going to do anything. I'll lose some chest hair, but you're going to the ground. You're not going to be able to hold on. And so often that's what it's like with us and God, that we think we're holding on to him. We're just grabbing on. We think we're holding on to him. And we think if I don't hold on to him, then I'm toast. But ultimately, he's the one holding us. It's his strength that we rely on. He is the one holding us. And we know that because just like when I'm holding my children and they try to get away, and they can't because I'm stronger than them. And, and so they can struggle all they want, but I'm holding on to them. And the same is true with God. He holds on to us sometimes even when we fight him. But we can rely on his strength. We can rely on the fact that he holds us because it's about him. It's not about us. It's about his strength that we rely on him. And he's the one holding us. We'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. How should we then live? Number one, recognize the way that the Lord's Supper marks the enactment of the new covenant. Recognize the connection with the Passover story. Recognize all the implications that Jesus is putting there by doing it on this night, connecting it with this landmark event that reset everything for the, for the Israelites, that set their calendar, started everything for them. It's the same thing that we're remembering. Number two, rejoice that Jesus' sacrifice paid for our sins, that his blood atoned for our sin because of the life, the true life, the eternal life that was in it had the power to atone for our sins. And then third, hold on to Jesus as you realize that he is holding you. Recognize that he is his strength that holds you. So even if we fail, he holds on to us. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we're going to take communion together with our little cups. And then uh, we'll sing one final song, and then we will have a prayer team that's available right over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, this account that we can read and, and see the context of, of you implementing this practice for us. And we thank you that you have. We thank you most for what it represents, for your broken body and shed blood, which paid for our sins, which covers us with your righteousness that makes us righteous in the eyes of God so that his wrath passes over us. We are forgiven. We are washed clean from our sins. We are indwelled with your Holy Spirit that we might live the abundant life that you intend for us here and now and enter into the eternal life that we are destined for when we die. I pray that you would remind us of our reliance upon you, that we might live in that reliance and not try to live in our own power, but rely on your power. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.